The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files, the special interview podcast where we go behind the scenes with contributors to Wizard Magazine and the comics professionals who filled its pages. This time around, we're talking to a man who got his start at Marvel and has written the adventures of all the big names, including the X-Men, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, just to name a few. He's also written Superman stories for DC Comics, dipped his toe into Jim Lee's Wildcats, participated in an interesting project for Rob Liefeld's Youngblood. You know, we gotta talk about that. And something I'm personally very excited to get into Kiss Comics. Of course, he's also one of the founders of Man of Action, who have brought many of these heroes to the screen on animated shows like Ultimate Spider-Man, Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and, you know, their own original hero that my son is a huge fan of, Ben 10. So much to get into. So we just got to say welcome, Joe Casey. Hey, thanks for having me. You reached out to us a while back. You had some very kind words about the podcast. I'm just curious, how did you find our geeky little show? <laughs> I think probably because Jimmy Palmiotti's been on your He has, show. yeah. So I think it's probably through that because I always love to hear Jimmy uh, wax about the 90s. Who doesn't? Absolutely. He seems like the nexus of like all comics. He's worked everywhere with everybody at some point. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. And he's a great guy too. Absolutely. So obviously that's how we got connected here, but we always want to take a step back. We want to discover how the world of comics entered your life. So Joe, please tell us your origin story. Probably not the most original story you've ever heard. I mean, when I was a kid, my earliest memories of comics were in the backseat of my mom's car and stopping at a convenience store for a slushie or whatever and seeing the comics on the spinner rack and just being drawn to them. And uh, it was love at first sight. I can't remember a time when I wasn't deeply into comics and the medium and the art form and, the, and, the, and then a little later on the industry. So it's it's been my longest relationship I've ever had, really. <laughs> I'm curious, your formative years and then teen years, how did your taste change? Like, what were you reading initially? And then as you matured a little bit, what were you getting into? Well, when I was a kid, I was a Marvel kid. I was big into the Avengers. That was my big book when I was really young. And then it's funny, I'm, I'm of the generation that could have probably aged out of comics had they not evolved right at the moment where I might have stepped away, which for me would have been the early 80s when the direct market really kicked in, the independent comic scene really started. And then even then I was, I remember being sort of one foot in, one foot out. And then the mid 80s hit and Dark Knight and Watchmen and Alan Moore on Swamp Thing and all those books that really took a leap forward. It's almost like every time I tried to get out, they would figure out a way to pull me back in. Once DC kind of revitalized itself post Christ on Infinite Earths, and I was in for life. That's awesome. Okay. So now, of course, you know, we're a very 90s focused podcast. So when the 90s boom hits in those early days, what was your excitement level over what was happening, whether it was at Marvel, whether it was at Image, like, was that a period for you where you liked what you were seeing or did you have a different reaction? Well, I'd tried to bust into comics. I'd done some small press stuff in the, in the eighties, the whole black and white explosion. I was a little bit on the fringes of that. 
I've been submitting things to DC Comics along the way and just, you know, thinking I could do this. And then I kind of let those ambitions lie for a while. And then when the image stuff happened, I'd, I'd known about McFarlane and Liefeld and the, from their time at Marvel. So I basically just followed them over to see what this whole image comics thing was all about. And interestingly, I would pick up those initial launches, those initial launch books. And aside from somebody like Eric or Todd writing their own stuff, I would see names of writers I'd never heard of before. And it made me think, I could maybe get a job writing these comics because it looks like they're hiring just anybody. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had no clue that, you know, Hank Canals was a good friend of Rob's and that Brandon Choi was good friends with Jim Lee. It didn't never even occur to me. I just thought these were guys I'd never heard of getting their first break. So I started submitting a couple things to Image and then I ended up moving out to California and moving out to LA. And this was uh, 94. So the bubble was expanding, but it had not yet burst. And through a mutual friend of mine, I ended up at Liefeld Studio when it was, he had a, a Extreme Studios was down in Anaheim. Yep. And sold my first story to Eric Stevenson, who was the editor of Rob's books at the time. So that was 95. That was my first professional sale. And then two years later, I broke in at Marvel. So it felt like a long time coming at the time. But looking back, it, I guess it happened pretty quick. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, I'm from Orange County originally, and, and I spent a lot of time in Anaheim. That's where my dad's offices were. And I actually got a tour of the Extreme Studios offices at that same time in 95. Maybe I passed you in the hall at some point <laughs> while you were handing in your script talking to Eric. So <laughs> as, you know, an aspiring comic book writer, and you're, you're obviously a fan as well, what was your relationship with Wizard Magazine when it launched, when it came out? My earliest memories are seeing it in my local comic book store in Memphis, where I went to college, and thinking that I was a child of the 80s, where there was Amazing Heroes, the Comics Journal, Comics Interview. So I was into that world of like trade industry magazines. So here was a new one. So I picked it up, but I dismissed it at first as a price guide more than a magazine. And I was not into, I was not a collector, I was a reader and a fan. So I dismissed Wizard at first. I was like, ah, oh, this is this is just a monthly price guide. It has nothing to do with what I'm into comics for. And then when I moved out to LA and really started to double down on doing it for a living, then I really paid close attention. And and the magazine was getting better in terms of its editorial content. It was it was doing articles about how to break in, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So it became a vital source of information just so I knew what was going on in this industry that I wanted to get into. Then I started buying it almost every issue. It was the metric of what was going on in the industry just as I was trying to scale the walls. So it was very helpful in that regard. That's fascinating. And so I think to ask, is there any particular either feature interview or even just like a cover image that sticks out in your mind when you think of Wizard Magazine during that period? You're like, oh, well, this was the one, or this was the issue I read over and over or something like that. Well, the one that sticks out, I don't know what issue number it was, but it was probably 90, late 94. Yeah, it was late 94. And it had an interview with James Robinson, who I had just met at a convention. The first convention I ever went to after moving to California, I met him and became friends with him not long after that. And so that interview was like, it coincided with me meeting him. And it was a pretty good interview. You know, James is good at those things. So that was my first kind of connect the dots of like, 
here's a guy that I just met. I'm a fan of his work. The interview was not a total fluff piece. It actually had some substance to it. So when I think back, that interview and that issue kind of had the impact on me where, like I said, that's where I really started to pay attention. Like this magazine has a place in this industry and it's getting stronger and stronger and more and more important. So I, I think that's when I really started to pay attention. So you're, you're talking about, you know, from that first story getting sold, you're able to then get work at Marvel. What did you learn about the comic book industry in that first year working at Marvel that you maybe had not anticipated? That's a good question. I, I mean, I guess what I learned was that it wasn't that hard to break in as I thought it would be. And that once I got in at Marvel, I, I mean, because I was new and cheap, let's emphasize that. I was imminently hireable by all the other editors at Marvel. So within six months of landing the gig writing cable, I got assignments from almost every other editor working at Marvel. I got a couple of annuals, a prestige one shot. I got the Incredible Hulk gig. It just seemed to sort of happen very quickly. And I wasn't expecting that at all. I mean, in fact, I had put so much emphasis on getting the first gig. I never really assumed that I would be lucky enough doing it as a career. I thought just just getting that first job was like seemed monumental. So once I got it, I was I didn't really have a plan beyond that except to just hopefully keep going and keep going, keep going. So I learned in that first year that ambition and enthusiasm counts for a lot when you're just starting out and you have you have that first opportunity. How do you take advantage of it? Well, you just push and push and push and just get as much mileage under your belt as you can possibly get, which I certainly did. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. Your name just, you know, in this last year of issues we've been covering, getting into 98, your name just kept kind of popping up. Oh, Joe Casey's writing this fill-in issue or whatever. You know, you just, you were were all over the place. And so speaking of Cable, uh, we just covered an interview uh, where you and Jose Ladron were basically coming in with a lot of bravado. You know, you guys are saying, Oh, as, as Cable was originally conceived, he was kind of a, a broken character. Every subsequent writer's trying to fix him. And, you know, your stated goal, you said you're trying to give Nathan Summers character. You know, you wanted to give him like a real life to attach himself to. You're going to ditch the 90s shoulder pads and the big guns and all of that. You're going to set him in Hell's Kitchen and he's going to fight all these C-list villains and all this kind of stuff. And I was just curious, when you look back on your Cable run, do you feel like you achieved what was your initial conception or did it... You evolve quite a bit. It's pretty much what I set out to do. I mean, I got that gig because James Robinson had written it before me and he brought me in. He basically held the door open for me, introduced me to Marvel and, and got me in. So he had started to lay that track anyway and told me everything he wanted to do. And how, So my approach was basically just an extension of his approach. The difference is when I lived in back in Tennessee, I play in uh, bands and the band that I was in at the time semi-popular in town. So the local music press would cover us. I've been interviewed before. And so when it came to being in Wizard, I kind of tapped into my punk rock roots of how do you, you know, make a splash in the press? How do you make some noise in the press? So it wasn't difficult to take those core ideas that that James had started and I had continued and kind of blow them out into making them sound maybe more important and more hyperbolic than they really were. It was fairly simple approach that we had, which was take a character that was emblematic of maybe the the excesses of the 90s and the excesses of the image era and try to bring some deeper sensibility to it. I mean, that's that's what you hope for as a, as a creator in comics is you want to find 
a character that has not necessarily been completely explored and do a deep dive on that character. Like, you know, Frank Miller on Daredevil, Alan Moore on Swamp Thing. I mean, these were the things I'd grown up on where great creators taking possibly a moribund character and really changing people's perception of them, which is what James thought about Cable in the first place. I mean, his if you look back on his press, when he took the gig, he said basically the same things I was saying, that, you know, possibly at that point with Rob long gone from Marvel and other creators coming in to take the, you know, take their shot at Cable, that not necessarily that much had been done with the character, that he might have had maybe even a negative connotation for what he represented. So that's a good challenge for a young writer. So I, I took it on pretty seriously. Yeah. And also I had a genius artistic collaborator. I mean, Ladrone, I mean, I can't say enough about how lucky I was that I came in on that gig when he had just gotten the gig and he and I became really close, really good friends. And we had our mission, which was to take this thing as far as we could take it, you know, to the mountain, so to speak. Yeah, definitely his art stood out. I was a fan of his from the Spider-Boy team up in Amalgam. And then I was like, oh, this is cool. He's moving on uh, to Cable now. The question I have for you, though, a lot of our listeners, when we start posting things about, you know, the books that you and your future collaborators on Man of Action, you know, Joe Kelly, Stephen T. Siegel, when you guys are writing X books and all these things like that, a lot of people say, oh, they had such great ideas and they were stifled by editorial interference at Marvel. You know, the fans. We think we know what was going on. So the question I have is, is that accurate? Did you feel like you were getting feedback from editorial that interrupted plans that you, you know, where you would have taken, whether it was Cable or the Hulk or anything like that? It was worse for my partners than it was for me because they were on the big flagship titles and Cable was kind of a satellite book, basically a, a second tier title to be kind. So there was less of it that I had to put up with. I had to put up with my share, but not, nothing like those guys on X-Men and Uncanny X-Men had to put up with. I mean, I, I really felt for those guys. And people inside of Marvel, as far as I know, I mean, from what I've heard, were digging what we were doing on cable. I mean, they, they were looking at the book in a different way, which is exactly what we set out to do. So they were less inclined. I mean, there was the occasional thing, but but for the most part, up until the very end, we pretty much got to do what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. So aside from the occasional speed bump, which was always going to happen in work for higher situations, I really have no complaints to the degree that my pals a man of action might have. Yeah. I am curious too, you know, because you brought up your your incredible Hulk. You know, you were taking over for Peter David after a 12-year run on this book that was celebrated, loved by fans. And then, I don't know if you know this, because we were just reading this article that said Eric Larson had gone into pitch and he wanted to do Hulk and Banner separated. Hulk's a ghost that, uh, you know, inhabits other people's bodies and turns them into Hulks and all stuff. Like, when you get in there, did you have any trepidation did you have any knowledge of any other you know ideas of who could have taken the book and they gave it to you well they had already whatever went down with peter david i have no idea but i do know that once i got on it was fairly well established that they were going to relaunch the book the plans were already in place to relaunch the book so my stint was always to the best of my recollection always meant to be this interim run so the, there wasn't, and I think the idea from Marvel side, and I may be giving them too much credit here, but I think the, the thinking was, let's get a new guy, steer the boat for half a year to put some distance between the Peter David years and the relaunch. 
I think because, you know, for several reasons, psychologically, so the fans would not give the um, relaunch too much stick for not being Peter David. That all heat would all go on to me. And also, they weren't quite ready to relaunch the book. They needed that six to eight months to get the get the relaunch ready. So I just sort of was like a, a glorified filling guy. I mean, I made the most of my time there. And to the outside world, it was, oh, the new guy's taking over for Peter David or the new guy's taking over the Incredible Hulk. But but behind the scenes, I, I had no illusions that I was the guy who was going to be there for years and years and years. I was just playing my part in the in the grand cosmic editorial scheme. So obviously, like at this time, Marvel's just recovering from the bankruptcy. You know, there was a lot of craziness going on in the years, uh, you know, that you're coming up in the company. At this point, though, in 98 especially, it felt like the industry was like, you know, from the highs of the early 90s, now it really was tanking in a big way, at least as, you know, it's kind of reported. And you see all these independent companies that had sprouted up during the 90s boom were kind of shuttering their comics divisions, like Acclaim Comics and things like that. It's like, we don't even do comics anymore. But did you feel there was a downturn and if so was that a concern that it would affect your opportunities going forward like is there going to be an industry to write for or is it more kind of like well they're desperate now they're going to try anything new to boost sales and i'm new well at the time it felt to me two things one that the that the bubble had burst already that we'd seen the worst of it by 98 99 it felt like things had kind of settled down to like maybe possibly a low point, but they felt settled. And inside the belly of the beast, there was no indication that Marvel Comics was going to go away anytime soon. You know, the, the the plans that were being made were for the next year and all that. It just, it felt like it was on fairly solid ground. And on top of that, I was so psyched to be in it that the last thing I was going to do was think doom and gloom, like, oh my God, will this be gone? I mean, my feeling was that I felt insecure just about having the job it wasn't about the industry going away it was about whether or not i could hang in there and make a go of it as a career so that nervousness slash excitement really carried the day for me i didn't really think much about the state of the industry and also on the wizard magazine side of it the way they reported on things it wasn't very doomy and gloomy it was very much hey we're still this club is still kind of cool and we're still having fun and let's party so when that atmosphere is, you're able to tap into that atmosphere, your, your depressing thoughts don't carry the day at all. It was exciting. And I was having the time of my life. I couldn't believe that I'd gotten this dream job, you know, that, that people were paying any attention to me at all. The least Wizard Magazine, which was putting me in their magazine and interviewing me and mentioning my name and taking my picture and all that. It was it was wild. So the, my that momentum was far surpassing any sense of like, are we in trouble? Yeah, I mean, they'd, they'd report on the things that were happening, but they were definitely the cheerleaders, the tastemakers of the time. So just diving a little bit deeper into that, do you have a memory of like the first time you were contacted by Wizard or, you know, was there a particular feature interview you did that just sticks out in your mind? Well, one one aspect of Wizard's editorial approach, and I know from talking to those guys, they were just really starting to feel their power in that sort of mid to late 90s period. So there was a couple of us that of, of sort of a similar age that broke in at the, around the same time. There was kind of this Joe Kelly first, then Devin Grayson, and then me, and then some other folks. So I had seen, you know, Joe Kelly get like this big article where he had big full page pictures of him. 
And then I saw a couple months later, Devin Grayson getting her big article with her big pictures. And then then it became my turn. And I remember them coming to me and it was very sort of old Hollywood. We'll make you a star, kid. <laughs> you know, I was like, all right, that's cool. I, anything to build the brand, right? The one thing I do remember is Joe Kelly had, we'd become friends by that point. And I always kind of made fun of it because his wizard feature had photos. Hilarious. Yeah, talk, talking to his action figures. <laughs> They posed him so he's talking to Deadpool or talking to, you know, whoever. And they came to me to to do my feature. And they were like, we got this idea for a photo because it's part of the headline was that I was taking over the Incredible Hulk. And remember, I've been in bands. I've had my picture taken. I've been in local press at the time and stuff. So I've kind of been a little had a little bit of experience here. So they said, we're going to we're going to dress you in like these ragged clothing and pose you like you're being shocked or whatever. In the production of shot, we'll put in a big nuclear explosion behind you as though you're Bruce Banner getting hit by the gamma bomb. And I said, yeah, I really don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, so they, ultimately they took me up to Griffith Park and took some shots of me just sitting around and took me to my local comic store and, and took a shot of me in my office at the time, which is really just my bedroom in my crappy apartment. That, that picture, if you... Just pan to the to the right, you see my mattress on the floor, which is all I had at that at that time. But I was very aware that if you let them, and it wasn't malicious on their part, they were just trying to do an entertaining piece. But if you let them, they will, you know, put you in a position that even if it seemed seems cool at the time, would probably come back to haunt you. And uh, so I, I had just enough self preservation instinct to keep that from happening. At least it's me, and I'm not trying to be something I'm not. You know. Yeah, that that's great that you, yeah, you had that kind of wherewithal to say, eh, maybe not. Now, obviously for a lot of people and, you know, you're again, you know, getting back to, to Steven and Joe, like being on X-Men, if you're going to be working at Marvel, always seemed to be the goal of most young writers and artists. Now, eventually you got your shot at that, you know, in many different forms. Is that a gig you pursued or is that another one where the opportunity came to you? Well, I'll tell you, it was kind of a little of both. And this, again, this Wizard Magazine, these guys had some plans and schemes they liked to do. Because I remember as I went on in, in my career, as I was gaining traction in, in the field, I was meeting and becoming friends with some of these Wizard guys, and most notably Matt Senright and Jim McLaughlin. And uh, and there was a, a writer who wrote the first interview that you were referring to. His name was Scott Brick. Mm -hmm. is became a really good friend of mine. Oh. So you'd hang out with these guys kind of off hours. So when there were the whispers in the air that there was going to be a big X-Men relaunch, and then, you know, it became known behind the scenes that Grant Morrison was going to be on one of the books. And so the idea of like, who's going to be on the other book? And and so I remember sitting around with Sinreich and Jim McLaughlin, and, and they would say things like, you should, you should write that book. We should get you on that book. I'm like, I, I don't know if you guys can get me that gig but you know more power to you i mean I, you know i mean I, it'd be great to i mean i was looking at it more and i've admitted this since so it's, it's not news to anybody who's ever heard me talk about it i was not a huge x-men fan growing up so this was not my dream job not to mention all through my adolescence teenage years and just that right up until the image comics start chris claremont had that job and it never occurred to me that he would not have that job. So even when I would daydream about being a, a professional comic book writer, 
that gig never seemed like it was going to be available anyway. So it never crossed my mind that it would be an option. And then, of course, through the 90s, there were other writers when Claremont left. And then friends of mine were doing it. You know, Steve and Joe were writing those books. And then uh, at that point, I thought, well, I may not be the biggest X-Men fan, but I've been in that office. It's a good career move, which is how the Wizard guys were looking at it, too. Like, that's a, that'd be a good gig for you. And I was like, all right. So I I don't remember if I, I didn't necessarily pursue it, but I, I think I just somehow made it known. Maybe the Wizard guys even passed along the message that I was interested because then the conversation began and the next thing I knew I had the gig you know I didn't pitch for it I didn't uh, say here's my ideas I think it was just I, don't, I mean it's very strange it would never happen like that today I don't think no and that that's what a lot of people forget right you know people forget because wizard as powerful as they were at the time kind of a footnote now you know like the fans of that era remember but the the lasting influence maybe isn't as fresh in people's minds but like we were talking about jimmy palmiotti earlier marvel knights happened because of garib sheamus he right. talked to marvel and said you got to get jimmy and joe over there they will do good work for you and you know jimmy credits him for that so it's it's amazing to think about the influence that wizard magazine had and you're you're another example of that as you said there i have a question for you though so we've had uh, jason liebig on the show a few times and he mentioned that during his time as an assistant editor in the x-men offices during this you know late 90s era that they were kind of on an island you know the x-men was just always the top book so they were allowed to do their own thing by the time you were there was that your experience is just like it's x-men it's gonna sell what are you doing joe the change when i came back to do uncanny x-men from when i was doing cable and other things in that office was that the editor and chief job had changed it had gone from bob harris to joe quesada and bill jemis obviously he'd come in and, and sort of sure. taken everything so it was a different vibe and I, I remember I had had a conversation with Bill Jemis when he got the job as whatever he was, president of Marvel, I guess. He did a lot of talking to freelancers that had made a, I guess, when I left Marvel after a couple of years, I kind of made a public show of it because some things went down and I was young. And again, my punk rock sensibilities kicked in and I talked to Newsarama openly about how they'd screwed the pooch a little bit and whatnot. So when Bill Jemis took over, he, he called me at one point. And he's like, what was the situation at Marvel that caused you to leave? What was really going on behind the scenes? And I told him, frankly, the things that had happened, some of which I was probably you know responsible for and some things I wasn't responsible for. So the new regime at that moment, they were brand new and they were looking to do something different and mend fences with freelancers that they saw some value in. You know, it's almost like Marvel Knights had taken over Marvel. So it's not surprising that that wizard influence was still being felt. And I'm sure that what wizard probably said, if they said anything, and I, I, I can't confirm this, is that they would have probably said to somebody, hey, if, if you get Joe on the other book, that's a great story. That's 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 good. He's, he's young and new. And, you know, that, that compliments Grant's being on the other book really well so that we could get behind that and really cover that as editorially. And Marvel listened to that kind of crap at the time. You know, they listened yeah. to that. It made a difference, I guess. Speaking of your time when you left Marvel, is that when you were writing Superman or did Superman at DC happen after X-Men? I'm trying to remember the timeline. It's Superman happened right before X-Men. Okay. What happened was I left Marvel in early 2000. I'd written there pretty exclusively for two and a half, three years. And some things went down that kind of 
drove me nuts. So I, I took my bat and ball and went home and ended up over at Wildstorm doing uh, the first work on Wildcats that I did. I did a book called Mr. Majestic. And Wildstorm was kind of the hip place to be at that moment. Even though DC had just bought them, the books that they were doing, they were doing, you know, Warren was doing Planetary and the Authority. It was just like a cool place to be. The hip superhero comics were coming out of Wildstorm. So that put me back on a different radar with the industry. So from there, I, I landed the Superman gig at DC and then the X-Men gig at Marvel. So there was a bit of a, I'd been able to kind of rekindle a certain kind of cachet after having that initial round of being the new guy and, you know, being a sort of a wizard magazine favorite at the time that had sort of died down a little bit. And then this, this second wave of awareness about my career sort of happened at that point. Yeah, that's awesome. And again, it's just like, you know, who you know and who knows you, and they're going to pull you to this project, bring you over here. I So I do have to ask, I, I kind of brought this up earlier. You had a chance also with Dark Horse in the early 2000s to write some Kiss comic books. Okay, I'm a huge Kiss fan, okay? Oh, right, yeah. I, I was buying these. I was, I mean, I have the 70s Marvel specials. I have all the McFarland Psycho Circus. I got yearbooks. I even bought the ones where they met Archie. I mean, Kiss loves to be in comics. Gene Simmons, huge comic book reader himself. So when you got this gig, I'm so curious just to find out, were you a fan? Did it come to you? You? did like was gene involved in any type of editorial like hey this is how we want to do it or just tell me a little bit about that experience well first of all i'm a huge kiss fan and have been since i was seven years old so it's funny because it's hard to separate because of their image and their whole vibe kiss and comic books go together perfectly the, but the connection to doing the comics was um one of my friends in the industry and who was writing one of the superman books at the time was jeff Lowe. And Jeff Loeb has known Gene Simmons since the mid 80s. Um, in fact, Jeff Loeb and his writing partner at the time wrote the Commando movie for Gene. Wow. And, and it just didn't work out in that respect. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger ended up doing it, which is probably for the best for their script and their careers as screenwriters. Jeff Loeb and Gene have known each other for years, obviously. And I think once the McFarland deal was done, the Psycho Circus book, and Gene was looking around and he ended up hooking up with Dark Horse. They asked Jeff first to do it. And Jeff was like, I don't want to write a Kiss comic book. I mean, Jeff is not a fan. He knows Gene on a kind of a showbiz level, but he knew I was a fan. So he suggested me to Gene. So I got on the phone with Gene. And it's funny because in a way, Gene Simmons is very much like his public image in some ways and, and in other ways, nothing at all like it. So when he got on the phone with me, the funny thing I thought was, I mean, I was nervous as shit talking to Gene Simmons, but he was going out of his way to, in a sense, prove to me that he knew about comics, modern comics, that he was had always paid attention. He, he mentioned, I remember one thing he mentioned was, Joe, I know all about The Authority, which was the hot book at the time. So I was like, wow, he's really, you know, he's schmoozing me as I'm trying to schmooze him in a, in a way. But I got the gig and... Started on the book and, you know, we agreed early, you know, early on. I said, I said, Gene, you know, I remember the early Kiss comics from Marvel. I think it should go back to that. I think it should go. You guys should be superheroes. Superheroes are huge right now. And you've done the horror thing with Todd. So let's go in the other direction, you know. And Gene agreed with that. So I wrote the first issue. And here I, I'm only dealing with Gene Simmons. And so I write the issue, the first issue, kind of from the Gene character's point of view, because this was all about, it was sort of like um, 
you know, bringing the the group out of out of mothballs and bring put them putting them back in their guises and you know whatever. Yeah, I loved that angle. That hooked me so well. I was like, oh, they have a history. Their superheroes get back together. I mean, it was so cool. Yeah, well, the original draft of the first issue was mostly from Gene's point of view. So I turned that draft in and the editor calls me up. He says, look, Paul Stanley wants to talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, he, he does, huh? He's like, yes. So here's his number. Call him up, you know, at this time or whatever and t- talk to him. I'm like, what am I talking to Paul Stanley about? He's like, well, he read the script and he wants to talk to you. I was like, okay. So I called him up at the designated time or whatever. I think he was up in Canada filming a guest spot on the old Chris Isaac show. Remember Chris Isaac had his little sitcom. Oh. But I get on the phone with Paul. He's he's really nice guy, but he kind of opens with, so I read your script for the first issue. Seems like you're a big Gene fan. <laughs> and I was like, in my head, I'm thinking, no, no, I was a, I've been a Paul guy the whole time, you know, he, but I sort of kept it together. I said, look, Paul, you know, I didn't think you gave a shit about this. I've been talking to Gene this whole time. And he was like, I know what everything that's going on. He went through the whole thing about the public image of Gene being the business guy and Paul being sort of the artist guy is just for the public. He sort of, at the time, he let Gene kind of take that on because he had other things to do, He's, you know, whatever. So I was like, God, you know, I didn't had no idea. And so I had to rewrite that script to kind of, in a sense, and I Paul didn't say this, but I could infer it pretty easily, that if Gene's character had six pages on his own, then the Paul character needed to have six pages. It had to be equal, perfectly balanced. And I was like, I, you know, I get it. I, I totally get it. Again, Paul didn't say that, but, but that was, I inferred that and I confirmed it with my editor. We thought, yeah, that's probably just the safest way to go. And But before I judged that, I did have a conversation with Paul about what his civilian guys would be. Because with Gene, it was easy. He was like this kind of business suit, you know, up in his you know off skyscraper office. It was kind of simple. But Paul, even Ace and Peter at the time, you know, even though the, the farewell tour had been over by then, those characters also lent themselves to alter egos and, and, and whatnot, comic book tropes could be easily applied to three out of the four members. Paul's was the hardest one to figure out, well, what is he when he's not, quote unquote, the star child? So we came up with, he was this kind of artiste type. He was doing sculptures and stuff. And it was funny because we came up with that together, but Paul never really mentioned that he was starting to paint. This was before he was doing his gallery shows and things like that. So we kind of of lucked out that it, you know, because he had said, I went to the you know high school of visual arts and all that. He sort of gave me his background. So that put me, that led me in that direction. But it's funny how it turned out to be a little more prescient than I thought it would, would be, you know, because he turned out to be very serious about art and painting and, you know, doing that whole bit. So that was a very interesting way to, to interact with guys who were literally my heroes from, you know, as long as I can remember. Yeah, I mean, that that's fantastic i'm so uh, it makes me happy to hear you were a fan you know like because it, it shows so much of the comics but it's just like did he have other people you know feeding him stuff so that's great honestly i could talk about this all night but i know <laughs> listen, I, listen i would challenge you you could ask me any kiss trivia question if i can't answer it i'll send you ten dollars oh this is great oh man i love it i love it uh, and i could i could probably come up with something that would that would stump you too well, I was gonna. I got one right now. I got one right now. I'll throw it out to you. We'll see where okay. we go with this. Okay. Uh, so, which member of Kiss was in a band 
that had a novelty song in the 70s called Eugene. Oh my god. This one? Wait, this is this is this which kid oh wait, which kitten? This is not an original member, is it? Uh it is. It's an original oh, it? member. In the 70s, had a side project with a novelty song. Oh my god. This is deep. That is deep. I might get ten dollars out of this. Yeah, I think I owe you ten dollars. I've never <laughs> I have no idea who, who it is. Look, look this up on YouTube tonight. This song is awesome. The band was called Crazy Joe and the Variable Speed Band. But oh, Ace okay. is the one playing guitar. He's the one speaking on it. Like it, it's him, but like totally not publicized as Ace Freely. And the song is called Eugene. And it, it's just a funny, weird song. It's almost like a Frank Zappa-esque, I think, song, you might say. So what year, did, what year was this? Was this during the Kiss years? Oh yeah. This? Yeah. Let me see. Let me see if I can see the year here. What does it say? Oh, so this is 1980. I, I thought it was 70s, but that's 1980. Oh, Okay, so that was just like, he's kind of on his way out anyway, so he's probably just wanting to do side projects. Okay, I th- yeah, I thought oh, that I owe you $10, Adam. Okay, hey. <laughs> Love it. That's a really good one, man. I'm, uh, God damn. <laughs> but I gotta ask about this too, you know, getting us back to the, you know, 90s image comics, but a little bit later, Rob Liefeld brought you on board at one point to re-script his early issues of Young Blood. Now, the timing on this is kind of funny because we're going to be talking to Hank Canals in the near future, oh, who is boy. the writer who scripted the original version of those issues. I have to ask, what was your experience like working with Rob on that project? It was great, actually. I mean, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was, first of all, integrate that first issue flip book into a more linear story and then play it out. And just, you know, I felt like, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who said this, that Rob's ideas and concepts sometimes were better than the execution. Right. He, he's a great idea, man. And the, the whole concept of Youngblood, celebrity superheroes, that was way ahead of its time. I mean, that's the reason Eric Stevenson got involved with Rob in the first place was that he had interviewed Rob about Youngblood pre-release and Rob had said all these things and what the ambitions of the book were and what the concept is all about. And Eric got really excited. And then he read the first issue and he felt like not a lot of those ideas made it onto the page. And when he told Rob that, Rob was like, well, come work for me then and come write the books. And so if you'll notice in the credits, I mean, from issue two on, it's Eric dialoguing those those books. And you can see that it marked improvement. Even, I mean, Eric was young then too, but, but there was an improvement from the first issue. So there was precedent to really try to bring out the merits of that concept, which is all I wanted to do. I'd always liked Rob's work because I knew what, I knew what his influences were. You can tell from the beginnings of his career that he was into Michael Golden and Art Adams and Walt Simonson. And so I dug it, you know, I was into it and it was a pleasure to work with him. We, we had a, we had a good time doing that because I think Rob appreciates, by the way, I'd known Rob since the cable days because he did appreciate what Ladrone and I were doing on the book. Because yeah, if there's one thing Rob can get excited about is other creators on his characters doing them well and, and committing to them and, you know, putting heart and soul into it. He's not proprietary at all when it comes to good versions of his characters. And I that he's proven that all along the way with the various takes on his characters. And he's been a real cheerleader for those takes, as opposed to being very proprietary and saying, no one can do them but me. You know, he's been very generous. So that was a, that was a good experience. And it took a while. The first version of that was only the first issue. And it came out sort of like on uh, 
this sort of real sort of left field indie label. It was like a soft cover, like an old Marvel 80s graphic novel format. And then I think it was thanks to Robert Kirkman that we were able to do the hardcover version at Image and present it in the way that it should be as a sort of the the permanent record version, which now is completely out of print and way out the window because Rob doesn't even own Youngblood anymore. Yeah, it's crazy how everything's gone down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but totally glad I did it. And then after that, I did a I did a, a little run on a Youngblood relaunch. That's one of the favorite things I've done in comics. I, I love writing that book. Yeah, there's there's been, you know, several attempts. You know, we're, we're just again in this period where, you know, Alan Moore is writing it for two issues and then awesome goes under, you know, type thing. So that's great that you were able to, to get your hands on that, do what you did. I, I am curious because I know you've done the mainstream, but you've also done a lot of really just interesting, you know, personal projects and things like that. Is there a project of the years that you feel like, you know, you wish people would rediscover or you feel like, you know, deserves a little bit more attention or you're excited that has? even though it maybe started a little bit more underground word of mouth you know to be honest i don't think of my creator own stuff that way i'm just jazzed that i'm in a position you know thanks to my early work at marvel my early work at dc and all those times that wizard put me in their magazine that i was able to build a brand that has sustained me to this day so that my deal with image comics which eric stevenson is the publisher at now it's a very open door policy when i have an idea and I, i get it together they'll pretty much publish whatever I do. It's this ultimate creative freedom that, you know, I I just cannot underestimate how important it is to have that avenue to just do my own stuff. It really takes the pressure off. When I go back now and do work for higher stuff, I'm I'm able to deal with it in a much more mature way because I have this other outlet that I've had for the past 15 years where even if it's a whim on my part, which some of them have been, (laughs) if I can execute it to a certain standard, they'll publish it. So that that freedom is just awesome. And I, I don't take it for granted at all. Obviously, like that is kind of the model more and more these days, right? Is, you know, in your case, you're able to get it out through image, but a lot of people just Kickstarter and everything else. You do your own thing. You know, working for Marvel or DC, you know, is not the end all be all goal. You can do that. And obviously, like with image, we saw people get out there. They say, well, I, you know, I want to publish. I want to be 100% in charge. And in a lot of cases with image, maybe it didn't come out so great. What do you think, whether it's you personally or just the industry in general or your generation that's able to do your creator own stuff what did they learn that has allowed more quality products to be produced you know well i think that things have calmed down a bit i mean it's hard to place any real judgment on the early like the image founders because that was a lot of attention in a very short period of time and a lot of money being made which brings a lot of pressure a lot of ambition that sometimes went unchecked. So, I mean, we can learn from history in the sense of how would we comport ourselves if we were in that situation. But the fact is, we're not going to be in that situation. You know, that time has passed. And what it has settled into now is a much more measured artistic industry, at least on the image comic side where it's creators who have passion and who have some sense of being able to self-regulate their careers, I guess, can put out things that are really reflective of of their sensibilities. Not every creator is meant to steer their own ship. Some guys are just better off being a cog in the machine and letting editors and publishers and distributors do that heavy lifting. And all they do is provide their piece, whether it's a writer or an artist or whatever they do. But there are certain guys, and I think I'm one of them, that was so 
enamored with the industry from from soup to nuts that to be able to build a comic book from the ground up and that means hiring everybody to do their various tasks steering the ship when it comes to graphic design and, and production picking the paper all that stuff you know setting the print runs and it's just a very interesting side of the industry that I like I'm, I'm an, I get a kick out of doing that stuff so it takes a certain mentality to take on that extra work which is not necessarily always creative but in a way it is creative because you're still making the comic you're just delving into areas that you you wouldn't at Marvel or DC if you were just a writer with an assignment so I've all along the way I've gotten a big kick out of building my books from the ground up and when I see them in print they are 100 percent uh, executed in, in the way that I saw them. There, there's no compromise. There's nothing that becomes, I mean, it's, you know, I learn from, th from my work that I put out so I can do it better the next time. But for the time, like right now, I've got a, an image comic coming out called Junior Baker, The Righteous Faker. First issue came out last month and issue two ships, I think in two weeks. That comic is the is the apex of everything I've learned about making comics because I've been doing it for the past 15 years at Image. Every new project that I do through Image is as good as I can make it at that time. So for something like Junior Baker, I'm super proud of it because as a package, it really holds up. It really looks good. The, the art direction is great. The graphic design is top notch. The presentation, the production, it's all it all just came together so beautifully that that's on top of it being a create a creatively artistic expression. You know, that I'm conveying some part of myself in the writing and the story. But the package itself is 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 also a creative expression. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm glad that it's come around to that point where, yeah, you can feel you have literally ownership of every part of it. You know, it's it's all you coming out in that way. That's great. And I, I'm curious, just as we kind of get to wrap up here, I want to circle back to Wizard because obviously you're still here. And Wizard Magazine is not. There's no wizard entity that still exists at this time, even on the convention side, any of that, really. So the question I have for you is, as you were continuing to be featured at Wizard, as your career is growing and things like that, and then, you know, Wizard fades away, were you very aware? Did you ever see missteps on their part? Or were you hearing from other people in the industry? You're just like, ah, I don't know if Wizard is quite what it was. What was your observation as wizard kind of met its demise well i looked at my time being in wizard uh, you know like them featuring me as sort of my teen beat years you know it's very pop it's very surface level and what happened with me personally when it sort of coincided probably with a lot of guys of my generation who were featured in the magazine two things happened really is for me one was that i just happened to do work that in some ways transcended what wizard would cover I was trying to do work that was a little deeper, a little more thoughtful. It wasn't just a pure pop product like I, like what I was doing in the early parts of my career. And that just wasn't of interest to, to Wizard or their readers. But it was of an interest of like the Comics Journal, which they interviewed me, I think, in 2004. And for me, that was a huge deal. That was like a level up in terms of like the comic book press paying attention to what I was doing. Then there was the Internet, which was unlike Wizard, who's coverage was getting sort of less in-depth and more surface i could go do interviews for you know newsarama or cbr or whatever that were in-depth and that were a little more thoughtful it just wasn't what wizard was doing at that point so the split was sort of a natural i wasn't that interested in doing a fluff piece for anybody anymore 
and Wizard's editorial point of view was becoming a little fluffier, you know, as they were paying more attention to Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. It became more of a pop cultural, it was like the People magazine of the comic book industry. Yeah. Which I I don't I wouldn't want to be in People magazine either, you know. <laughs> so it was not there was nothing, it was a natural evolution away from that venue to promote my work. But I mean, I didn't ever really consider that Wizard would go away. What I miss now about it, to be perfectly honest, I've talked to other people about this, is that in that late 90s, early 2000s period where where I was in it a lot, it was the lighthouse of the industry. You know, it was, I mean, it's no secret it sold way more than any comic book. It had more newsstand presence than any comic book. So more people probably saw me in Wizard Magazine than ever bought the comics I wrote at that time. Even yeah. I was on Uncanny X-Men, which was one of the top sellers. So it really had an impact. And it was really like the way that you measured where you were in your career or where you were in the industry was whether or not you were in Wizard Magazine. And, and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to not be in the magazine. You could define yourself by saying, oh, I'm not in Wizard Magazine, and that's part of my identity. And it provided that center of the universe that we don't have now, you know. Uh, and I miss it because when you're going out there and you're promoting a new project, it's hard to know where to promote it anymore. It's hard to know where to go to get the most eyeballs or the most awareness. Back in the day, Wizard was it. And you knew that if you you could get even just a little news item about your next project, whether it was Marvel, DC, or creator-owned, people would see that. And that had an effect on, you know, if not sales, at least awareness, which if you were if you knew how to hustle, you could translate that awareness into sales. So without a wizard magazine or something like it in our industry, it's a bit fractured. There's no true north in when it comes to promotion and sort of media and awareness device. There's no awareness device. No one reads the internet anymore. The YouTube sort of comic book YouTube community is still pretty incendiary. It's a little, it's still a little mean because they're built on personalities. And the way you build your personality online is to be incendiary and talk smack about people and kind of be a little more brutal than you would if you had an editorial umbrella that was sort of shaping. I mean, Wizard Magazine could could certainly poke jabs at people, but they had a light touch when they did it. Because I, I remember one Wizard review of one of my books where they took the panel out of the comic to use as the visual graphic. And the 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 panel, I forget, it was the issue of Cable or something else where the, the character is like, this is taking too long. And then the, the, the Wizard caption answer was, I'll say it is. This story is running all, on way too long, you know, is a, a jab at the decompression or whatever it was. That, that was clever. I, I got a kick out of that, even though it was a, a, a jab against my work. It was done with some panache. So it wasn't that Wizard had to play nice all the time. They certainly didn't. But the way they, when they didn't play nice, you kind of felt like, hey, look, at least it, it didn't feel like bad press. It felt like all press is good press when you're in that magazine. That's a very, very good point. Like you say, just to have that center of the comic book universe where you knew everybody had their eyes on it. I'm curious now, 
these days we've mentioned man of action several times you've moved on you're you've done so much in the world of animation but a lot of wizard people have moved on you you mentioned matt senreich and what's he doing you know we got robot chicken and everything else going on are there any other people from the wizard days that you maybe run into these days that are kind of in the the entertainment industry or in the comic side of things well i know a lot of them ended up in editorial i mean i knew mike cotton when he was a staff writer at Wizard. And then he went on to be an editor at DC for many, many years. Brian Cunningham, same. So, but the guys I sort of knew the best were Senreich and McLaughlin and Scott Brick. And, you know, th- those were the those were the guys that lived here in LA and that I hung out with and they would come to my shows and things like that. So those are the guys that are friends to this day. Now, one guy that you may not consider a friend, I don't know if you ever had a run-in with him, but this is a question we always ask at the end of every interview of our guests. Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? Well... It depends on your definition of cool and your definition of fool. <laughs> I never really had any interaction with Garrett myself, but I can I can say that I'm grateful that he provided a venue, no matter what the impetus was and no matter where he took it. For a while, it served me and my career and our industry very well. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that is part of the Wizard Magazine story right. uh, that's all, also interesting and also sometimes cool and sometimes fool, you know? <laughs> Very true. But that, yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, again, like you said, wherever, you know, the the intentions were, what the end product and everybody he brought together to make Wizard certainly made an impact for you and for so many other folks. So, Joe, this has been really just so much fun. Uh, such great insight that you've provided here. Now, you mentioned, you know, your latest project that's coming out right now, but is there any other uh, projects we should be looking at on the horizon? And where can people, you know, follow your work and see what you're doing well i'm not big on social media but i'll tell you in terms of projects junior baker is out right now it's five issues speaking of young blood i'm doing a, a series with the team young blood character dutch if anybody remembers dutch out there so there's a zero issue in november and then a mini series that starts in february of next year and then starting in january i'm back at dc doing a a, a book out of the superman office called kneel before zod oh we're, we're gonna put uh, General Zod through his paces and, and return him to his bastard glory that he, he always should be. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. Well, fantastic again. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and reaching out. And man, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to see Kiss at the Hollywood Bowl in November. So I'll just shout, Gene, Joe Casey says hi. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, and listen, when, when, when you guys are covering future issues and you get to my team beat spread, Go easy on me. That's all I ask. (laughs) We'll do our best. And that does it for another edition of The Wizard Files. Want to thank you so much for checking out this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So many great stories. And Joe, I'm coming to collect that $10. Never challenge the master of KISS trivia. Anyway, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, you know, we don't just do interviews with comic book creators over here. We actually cover every issue of Wizard Magazine in depth. That includes all the special issues they released and any number of uh, bonus publications that were put out. Uh, So if you want to check out our entire backlog of over 240 episodes, you can go to wizardscomics.com or your favorite podcatcher of choice. Of course, if you want to stay connected with us, we are on X at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, we're on Blue Sky at Wizards Comics. You can also connect with us on YouTube where we have all original content over there 
there. Lots of interesting videos and links into Wizard Magazine history. But we do have a lot of interviews in addition to comic book creators from the 90s with the actual people who created Wizard Magazine who were writing content for it. So you can go back and find more issues of the Wizard Files as well. And if all that doesn't sound like enough, then why not join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics, where for just five bucks a month, you get uncut early release episodes, you get our bonus 90s Super Cinema podcast, you get PDF scans of the issues of Wizard Magazine that we are covering, you get a chance to join a community, we have many different ways where these uh, chats between all our various listeners who have taken the plunge and decided to support the podcast get together, talk about 90s comics and more. There's so many perks, like I say, go on over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics for all the details. But hey, we'll be back again soon. And until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.